Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Well, it is uh, a change. You can feel the change of season in the air. Uh, kids are back in school, and uh, you know, I, whenever school starts back up uh, this time of year, I, I find myself remembering those days. Um, you know, good times and bad times. For for me, my most of my school memories uh, revolve around high school, and I remember sitting in classes thinking, "Why on earth do I need to learn this?" What will what will it uh, what good will it do me? Um, one of my kids who remained nameless just recently said, "Learn about this dead person," um, and I remember thinking that. Uh, and then there was things that I remember thinking that I really enjoyed as well um, that have stuck with me. Those teachers that that really unlocked uh, education in such a beautiful way. And when you think about learning, I don't know what that popping noise is. Anyone else know? Extra drum beat. Aaron has the magic touch here. Maybe. We'll see. All right. Maybe it's my electric personality that's doing it too. So. <laughs> that's right. You know, so when we think about learning things, some things we learn because we have to, um, some things we learn because we need to, and some things we learn because we want to. And I'm just going to go ahead and do go old school here. Testing, one, two, three. There we go. Um, so how, how do you know, let me ask this, how do you know when someone genuinely wants to learn something? Anybody have an idea? They ask questions. Good. They ask questions. And we want to be a church that, that asks good questions. And, you know, I, I'll even say this far. If you, if you don't ask any questions, then you probably think that you know it all, don't you? And so when, when we read the Bible and we see how Jesus um, taught, primarily taught people, it is almost exclusively through asking questions. Um, Jesus was asked himself over 300 questions in the, the recorded Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Jesus himself also asked a lot of questions, almost 200 questions. In fact, sometimes when he was asked a question, he would respond with a question, which honestly would drive me nuts. But that's the way that Jesus pushed people into the question behind the question, the, the bigger truth in what was going on. So if this is your first time with us, um, I'll, I'll, let me just give a, a preface here. Typically, on Sunday morning, we sing like we've sung, we pray like we've prayed, we gather like we've gathered, then we open up God's Word, and my favorite way to teach as a pastor in this church is through books of the Bible. We, we just um, kind of finished a, a, a long journey through the Gospel of Mark. We took 13 chapters in, in 35 plus weeks. But as we were looking towards the fall, we think about how do we learn and how do we engage and how, and how do we see how God's word affects our everyday lives. What we've been doing the last week, so we've been asking you all, members of our church, to submit questions about why we believe what we believe, our faith, our practice, and those types of things. And so this morning, we're going to start kind of answering some of those questions that have been submitted. Now, some of them, they may not be a Sunday morning message, 
They may maybe a blog or a video post. Um, but we're going to try and get through all those questions that have been submitted. And I'll just say one thing. If you haven't submitted a question yet, some of you came to me even and said, I was thinking about this, but I haven't actually submitted it yet. This will be your last week to do that. Uh, because I know how it is. Sometimes when you start something, everybody's last minute, right? And so I, I, I anticipate some folks are going to have some questions. Um, so, so this week, if you, if you have any outstanding questions, we'd love for you to get those in. So with that said, I was thinking, where do we start with all the questions that have come in? Um, and I thought we would start with one that um, maybe, depending on your church background, um, you have wondered about this or you've been told something about this. And this may even make you, make you kind of snicker a little bit. But before I show the question, let me say there is a bigger question behind this question, okay? And we're going to get to that today, too. So the question is, what about tattoos? <laughs> Now, now uh, I, I found this one. I thought it was pretty good. It's the Last Supper tattooed on a guy's arm. Um, so the question is, why, why pick this one? Of all the questions that have come in, there's been some good ones. Uh, why pick this one to start our series? Well, I, I think there's a couple reasons. One is, some of you maybe, your image of what it means to be a follower of Christ is purely about behavior. It's about morality. It's about what you should and shouldn't do. And, and some of you maybe even grew up in a church where you had to be a different person on Sunday than you were the rest of the week. And, and I mean that because you, you dressed differently. Maybe you had your Sunday best, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you, you talked differently, man. You would never talk like that, uh, how you talk in church with your friends or vice versa. You, you behaved differently. And so what you were kind of taught is you had to, to be a Christian, you'd kind of lose yourself. You had to be somebody you weren't to gather with God's people on Sunday. So that would be one reason that I think maybe it's good to explore this, this idea of, of morality and presentation as a believer. The other one is this particular question, there's just one verse in the Bible that even mentions tattoos. Um, and it's in a book called Leviticus. How many of you, that's your favorite book of the Bible? Okay, you're lying. <laughs> okay, maybe you're not. Maybe one of you are, are really like that. But, but this is a book that many Christians avoid, and many non-Christians use as a gotcha. Oh, well, okay, you're saying that to follow Jesus means this. What about in Leviticus, blah, 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 where it says this? And then most Christians go, I don't know. We don't, we don't read Leviticus. <laughs> and, and a lot of us may feel that way. Like we, we, There's a lot of weird things in the Old Testament, but those things are they're irrelevant because of Jesus. But I'm going to tell you, it's not true. So how do we deal with that? So the question behind the question. That's what we're going to look at today. So before we get into anything the Bible may or may not say about tattoos, let's ask some broader questions here. Number one is, why does it even matter? Why does it even matter? Uh, other than a permanency, because tattoos are forever, is there really a big difference between, uh, say, getting your face painted at a fair and getting a tattoo? Like, what's, what's the big difference other than permanency? The other question we might ask is, why would God care? 
of all, of all the things that God could care about. I mean, it's not something, if, if, if your tattoo is not something blasphemous or evil, what is the big deal if I want to put a howling wolf at the moon at the, on my stomach? Which I happen to have, no, just kidding, I don't have that. What is the big deal if we get tattoos? Why does God even care? <laughs> Some of you are like, that's a great idea. I'll try that one. The other, the other question that we might want to ask is, what have you been told? What have you been told? What have you been modeled in your house and those that you live with? Um, maybe you grew up as a Christian and so you were told, absolutely not. This is, you know, tattoos are of the devil. Or maybe you grew up not Christian. You thought, what the heck? Is this even a thing? <laughs> Why is this even being talked about at, ch at church? So depending on your age, your generation, your culture, even it, it, maybe you, you're from outside of the United States and, and tattoos are part of the culture. Depending on where you have come from, what you've been told or modeled. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break right now. We're going to break for discussion. I want you to turn with a few people that you know or don't know. I don't really care. Um, and I want you to, to, to share these questions with each other. So take a moment right where you're at. If this is your first time here, I'm sorry if you feel awkward about this. But, you know, church is not a, a theater event. We interact with each other. And so for just a moment, uh, don't get personal, okay? Like you may turn around and go, whoa, that person's got tattoos. What do we talk about? Let's not make it personal. Just say, hey, share these questions. And then in a few minutes, we'll come back to God's word and explore it together. One, two, three, break. Okay. All right. We'll bring it back now. We'll bring good conversations. I overheard a little bit. So uh, a couple things. One is there, there is a history with tattoos, right? So we know that like this, this was the Bible's written thousands of years ago and we'll see in just a moment. It does reference tattoos. Obviously the, the mode and method of tattooing has changed quite a bit. I will say, I'll just say this straight up. I don't have any tattoos. The main reason I don't is because I'm deathly afraid of needles. So the idea of a thousand needles poking ink into my skin is horrifying to me. Number two is I can't, I've never really thought of anything that I want on me permanently, although I could probably come up with a scripture verse or my wife's name or something like that. But, um, but historically, tattoos have been a thing for a long time. So I have a, I have a, a number of friends uh, that are from uh, my, Polynesia, Micronesia, and tattooing uh, is a cultural thing. Uh, one of my friends who's from Samoa, he, he told me, hey, you know, I'm going to get this, this full um, like arm and leg tattoo, and it connects with my, my tribe and my history. And he said, I'm going to do it in the um, traditional way. And I said, well, what's the traditional way? He says, with a shark's tooth and a hammer. I thought, man, that is pretty cool sounding, actually. Um, I would never do it, but hey, that's really good. So it was it was part of his, his culture. In the United States, um, tattoos really have, have become a, an art form in just really in the last 20 years or so. But, but prior to that, you go back, say, 150 years, the only tattoos that were typically used were to identify property, people as property. Um, then moving forward into the World War I, World War II era, um, uh, the tattoos were, were typically used in, among military personnel, specifically sailors. So my wife's grandfather, who just passed away a couple years ago, he was in the Navy. He had a naval tattoo on his forearm. 
Then you move forward into the, to the 70s, kind of just after the, the cultural kind of revolution here in our, cult, in our country, the, the Jesus people movement, all those things. And it started to become a, a symbol of rebellion. And so uh, many of you even maybe got tattoos in the 70s or the, or the 80s as this kind of rebellious statement uh, to do that. Then in, later on in the later 80s and the 90s, tattoos started to become associated with specific gangs. So gangs would get tattoos to, to kind of symbolize their, their affiliation. Then it started in the later 90s and 2000s just to become something we do. And almost everybody I know that got one tattoo had to get more tattoos. And it becomes this cultural expression. Just this last week, I was having lunch across the street with a, a member of our church. And our waiter had a bunch of tattoos on his arms. And what I love to do is say, hey, tell me about the meaning of your tattoos. And so he immediately launched into essentially describing his personality through his tattoos. He said, hey, this picture, uh, I, I forget what it was, of, of a wolf or something, that represents, um, you know, my passion, my character here. This, this picture represents my desire to, to be um, kind of protective of people in my family. And so for him, his tattoos kind of carried this meaning with them. And so there's all sorts of reasons now that people get tattoos, but certainly they have been around for a long, long time. And they're very culturally based. So the question, the big question is, does the Bible say anything specifically about tattoos? Now let me say this. The Bible is not, nor is it ever claimed to be, a comprehensive manual for every single moral, ethical, or religious situation a human will ever find themselves in. Right? You know that, right? Like it's not like turn to page 345 to figure out what to do when your wife is a fan of the Seahawks and your husband is a fan of the 49ers. Like what do you do, you know, in, in that moment? Like the Bible doesn't address every single issue. So, is, does the Bible even address this question? Well, the answer is, yes, it does. There's one reference, that's not a positive one. Leviticus 19.28. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. And just in case you're wondering who said it, I am the Lord. Signed, sealed, delivered. This verse has been used for decades to tell every rebellious teenager they are never to get a tattoo. But is this what it's really talking about? What's, what's the context? I mean, we could look a little bit before this in Leviticus 19, verse 19, where it says, Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material, and you're all in sin if you have polyester cotton blend this morning. <laughs> right? Or you could look for one verse after, or one verse before Leviticus 19.27. It says, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. When I was 12 years old, I had a mullet. I was in sin. I cut this just short on the sides, long in the back. You know, I was in sin, right? So this should lead us, when we look at this, and when, when, we, when we consider the question, this should lead us to the broader question of, yo, what is going on in Leviticus? Like, what, what, if you have these types of commands all mixed together, what on earth is going on here? Now, first of all, we have to understand the Bible is not one flat piece of literature. So, let me, for example, what I mean by that is if you pick up a novel and you read that novel, it is a novel. Like, through and through, it's a story. It's a made-up story that you're reading through. The Bible 
is not one flat piece of literature. It's got 66 books. And in the, in the contents of that, it's a library, right? It's got poetry. It's got history. It's got law. It's got prophecy. It's got narrative about the Gospels. It's got letters. The Bible is not one flat piece of literature. So whenever somebody uses Leviticus as a gotcha, they're not understanding what? The context of Leviticus. What type of literature are we reading here? So hang with me here. Because we can't understand Leviticus 19.28 by ripping it out of context and using it like some kind of hammer on this particular issue. So let me just briefly zoom out a little bit and give you a, a little context on what has led up to this point, to these types of things being said. So before this, the people that this was addressed to, the, the nation of Israel, had been in slavery for hundreds of years in the country of Egypt. After hundreds of years of slavery, and through miraculous means, we even sang about this, Moses parted the ocean, the people of Israel have been freed. They're free. And God himself is lead, has led them out of freedom. The Bible says, by a pillar of cloud by day and fire at night, the presence of God was with his people. But way before their slavery, even, there's a context. God had made a promise to a man named Abraham that through his people, who would eventually become Israel, that through his people, a deliverer would come. And this deliverer would bless the entire world. So Israel was a special nation, but it wasn't going to be reserved just for them. And we know as Christians who that deliverer is. Say it with me. Jesus. Jesus was that deliverer. So, but before that, we have to ask the question, a deliverer from what? Okay, from slavery in Egypt? No, no, no. Slavery before then. What kind of slavery? What kind of deliverer did humanity need? Well, there's a universal worldwide issue, and the issue is sin. Sin that was committed by the first man and the first woman. Sin that now resides in every human being and keeps us from God, keeps us from peace, keeps us from hope. So, we need a deliverer. Back to the setting of Leviticus and no tattoos. After Egypt, the presence of God was with Israel, literally right with them in their camp. And so this would be a good question to ask. How could a holy God live with an unholy people? How could light and darkness exist in the same place? If sin still was an issue, the deliverer had not yet come, how could God be with those kind of people? And this is where the instructions in Leviticus come in, or what's known as the Levitical law. So if you want to know what type of literature Leviticus is, it's primarily law. There's over 600 laws that the people of Israel were to follow so that they could stay in step with God, so that God's presence would remain with them. So an unholy people could be holy. And there's this repeated theme as you look at these 600 laws. 
of the Lord God as holy among his people, which serves as a reminder that these laws are a means of holiness, a means of approaching God in the daily concerns of the community of Israel. This is how you're to live, to order yourself. We have laws too, right, that keep us in check in the world that we live in. My oldest son is getting ready to drive. Please be praying for me. And he's going through driver's training right now, and he's got a manual that he has to learn. And it's the laws of how to drive, right? All the laws. And I've been taking around our neighborhood, and I'm like, okay, well, in this situation, you can turn right on a red light, but, in, but there might be a sign that says no, and then you may have to yield to this pedestrian. I'm like, oh, my Lord, there's so many laws. But yeah, I don't even think about it anymore, right? I've been, I've been driving long enough. I've been doing these things. It's not a big deal. And so the, the, the people of Israel, they were taught these laws. These are the things that we do as a family, as a people, because God's presence is with us. And, I, and if, I'm sorry if you ever sat in a church where, where a pastor said, can you believe 600 laws is a lot? There's, it was impossible to do. It really wasn't. We, we, we obey so many laws. In fact, I was trying to, to find out how many federal laws there are in our country. Nobody knows. There's literally been projects done to try and figure out how many laws, and people run out of steam because every year there's probably about 600 new laws that are made, right? So 600 laws, their design was to highlight the holiness of God and what it means to live rightly with him because the presence of God was literally dwelling with the people of Israel. Earlier in Leviticus 15, God was speaking to Moses and Aaron, and he said, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is where? Among them. God wanted to stay with his people, but he can't stay where things are broken and sinful. So since the perfect and holy God was visibly present, the people needed to be pure in his presence. And the question is why? Well, he wanted his people to be set apart. That's another way that you can put the term holy. Sometimes we think of holy just simply as behavior, but it's this idea of being consecrated to God, to be being set apart for him. From the things that lead them to sin and from the evil culture that they just came out of. So they've been, they've been in a culture. They've been under occupation as slaves that was completely opposed to God. And so these laws were designed to get them back to the heart of God and what it means to follow him. So we see in Leviticus 19, not just the prohibition against tattoos, but we see instructions on your appearance, on lifestyle, on religious practices. All of these are designed to make the people of God distinct from the pagan culture they came out of and to give them a vision for what it means to belong to God. But also, one of the main things that Levitical law exposed in the hearts of the people is that it's impossible to completely live a sinless and holy life. And if we're honest, many people just don't want to anyways. Let me ask this question. Have you ever met somebody that is without sin? No. And if you ever do, then they've already they've just sinned to you because they lied to you about their sin. 
It's impossible. So what, what the Levitical law, tattoo, prohibition, and all, what it did really well it, then, it does really well today. It points us first to the holiness of God. And second, it challenges us to examine ourselves. And then it also confronts us whether we really want to obey God or not. Some of you, when you were younger, your parents said, okay, you can do these things, but you can't do these things. And what did you really want to do? The things that your parents told you you couldn't do. Like, you didn't even need to have a reason for it just because they said, don't do this. And I'll tell you what, there's no better um, illustration of our sin nature than that. And it doesn't start when you're like a teenager. It starts when you're, we can, you can walk, when you can talk. Some of you just had kids recently. You, you're already seeing that come out in your kids. You're like, who taught you how to lie? <laughs> like, well, nobody taught them how to lie. <laughs> it's in our sin nature. We do the things we know we're not supposed to do. So the Levitical, the Levitical law, this, this idea of holiness, it highlights these things for us. But here's the most important thing that the Levitical law does. It serves as this signpost, this historical signpost, that points forward to Jesus. That we need somebody who can really free us from our sin. Remember, all that was going on back then was part of God's plan to deliver humanity once and for all from the chaos and the destruction of their sin. These laws were given for that purpose, to preserve the nation of Israel, keep them close to the heart of God so that his plans would come to pass. Hebrews 10 says this, reflecting on the law, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. We talked about this last week in Hebrews chapter 14, that it is the sacrifice of Jesus, sinless sacrifice on our behalf, that makes us right before God, not anything that we do. So what can make us perfect before God is Jesus. Galatians 2 says, A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people that are like, yeah, someday I think maybe I'll visit church or I'll go to church because they know that, that maybe that's a way that they can draw close to God. But they say to me then, but first I need to dot, 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 dot. First, I need to stop doing this, or I need to do this, or I need to build up this. They say, I need to accomplish something. I need to, to do something in order for me to be good enough to go to a place where God is worshipped and God has talked about. And I go, stop it. <laughs> You're never going to get there. And you don't have to anyways. It is not your behavior that makes you good enough. It's Jesus that does that. And he did it all for you. And so, the, listen, right religious behavior can make you look like you're good with God, but it can still leave so much room in your heart to be disconnected. You can dress right, you can talk right, you can even act right, and still have a heart that is far from Jesus. But right belief, that is faith in Jesus, Galatians, well, it starts in your heart. 
And then it begins to work out in your life. It begins to change your behavior. You know, my wife and I, many of you know this, we've, our, our two youngest are adopted. And we went through this legal process of adoption. It was crazy and expensive and time-consuming and emotional. Called a paper pregnancy because it takes a long time. And I remember at the end of that, we met our, first our daughter, then our son. And she's my daughter now. And he's my son now. But they weren't. They were legally, there was this transaction that had been made, but their hearts, they didn't know what it meant to be a son or a daughter. They never experienced that. They never had parents before that they had known. And so it took them believing, understanding that the love that me and my wife were giving to them was real. It took us modeling for them the, that love that they began to understand what it meant to be a daughter and a son, to have parents. And then their behavior began to change. They began to act like our kids. But that took some time. It wasn't just a, oh, okay, here's the paperwork signed, sealed, delivered. Now, you're, now you are a daughter. Now you are a son. It took believing that, feeling that, walking that out. And so this passage, you know, wading back into the original context, <laughs> all the way back to, to the question, what about tattoos? What about tattoos? It's a bigger question than that. But to answer the question, this passage, along with um, really verses on either side of it, 26 through 31, this kind of section of verses, they all seem to connect to pagan practices having to do with what's called cults of the dead. And I gave you some cross-references there if you want to see it. These were particular practices that were, uh, that were acted out lived out in Egypt and other surrounding nations in that time that were based on a rejection of God and they were based in demonic pagan practices. And so when God says, don't do these things, what is he saying? He's saying, make me your God. Be holy. Follow me. Reject the old ways and the ways and the culture around you and follow me. Be part of my family. And so the concern then, as it is today, is whom are we identifying with by the way that we live our lives? Having a tattoo or not having it doesn't indicate whether our heart belongs to Jesus. I've met some dudes that have come out of tough backgrounds, gang backgrounds, and they're all tatted up with some horrendous things, and God got a hold of their heart, and they're madly in love with him, and they're on fire to tell others about the one who saved them from their sin. And their tattoos have no bearing on that salvation or their relationship with God. So having a tattoo or not does, doesn't indicate who our hearts belong to. But the way that we live and what we do with our bodies does say something. So hear me out here. The way that we live and what we do with our bodies does say something. So ultimately, this isn't a matter of should I or shouldn't I. It's who do you belong to? And how is that made real? How is that reflected in the world that you live in? So let me just kind of end with a few questions for you to ponder. If you were to, to want to get a tattoo, let me the one question would be, why do you want to do it? Why do you want to do it? Because you like the way it looks. Listen, I used to have earrings. 
at that time. I thought they were cool. I don't have them anymore. I don't think they're cool. A little easier to, to take earrings out. Uh, if you look close, I still have the holes. I was actually contemplating seeing if I could still put them back in just for this morning. Um, so why do you want to do a tattoo? Just because the way you like the way it looks? I don't think there's a problem with that, right? Why do you want to do it? Because my parents said I couldn't. Where's your heart there, right? Where's your heart? Why do you want to do it? Because it's meaningful to you. Another question to ask, what is it communicating? What is it communicating? Is it communicating something beautiful, something meaningful, or something profane? Is it all about you, or is it about something that God has done in you? What is it communicating? And the last question is, just to consider, what kind of attention is it creating? What is it pointing people toward? Is it in a place in your body that draws attention to that particular part of your body? What kind of attention is it creating? Maybe it's, it's creating no attention at all because nobody's ever going to see it, right? Maybe it's pointing people towards something that makes them think. Like we have these little bracelets that say, love God, love people, love our city. If somebody were to ask me about this, I could say, hey, this is the mission of our church. So I, you can use that just like you could use a tattoo to make, uh, to point to people towards something that make them think. So as someone who had an earring and now doesn't, let me encourage you also, lastly, to think long-term, to think long-term. First of all, language changes. So you may get some kind of cultural phrase on your arm that you think is super cool in 2022. And 20 years later, when your kids are young, they're like, do you know what that word means now? <laughs> Right? Like, that happens all the time. Style changes, right? Like, some of you all are still wearing the same clothes you wore in high school, and that's okay. I have no problem with that. But style changes. And then lastly, some of you know this better than others, your body changes. I actually was talking with somebody this last week, and I said, my, here's my hypothesis. Two generations from now, so my grandkids they're going to be way less tattooed than my generation was. You know why? Because all their grandparents are going to have these blobs of ink as their skin has sagged that are undiscernible. They were really cool when they were young and in shape, but now I don't know what the heck that is. Just my, my prediction. You can, we can revisit it in a few years. <laughs> so do you understand the heart of what's going on here? Do you understand what, what, what we want to be as a church? We want to be people that ask these questions, but that weighed beyond the question to the heart of God. John 1.14 says this. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Because of Jesus, we're no longer bound by the Levitical laws. Eventually, the people of God would reject God, and his presence would be removed from their midst. But God's promise would come to pass. Jesus would arrive through the nation of Israel, and he would bring what no law could bring, freedom. Freedom from sin, not based on our works, but based on his works. And this phrase, dwelling, a better phrasing of it would be tabernacled among us. 
that the Spirit of God literally comes and resides in us, in our homes, in our hearts. And I'll tell you what, this is amazing and humbling news. That Jesus, that God himself, wants to be a part of our family. To be a part of our lives as intimately as if he was living in our house. But here's where the old ways of Leviticus and the new ways of Jesus are very much the same. Ultimately, you and I do have to choose whether we're going to do things our way or God's way. We get to choose whether we're going to accept his free gift of grace, which is not dependent on our work, and then live for him or reject it and live without him. In the end, one day, tattooed or not, my hope is that when you meet God face to face, John 1.12 will be true for you. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And for those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus, that is who we are. Amen? Amen. We're going to... Um, we're going to close with one final song, and it's a song, it's really a modern-day hymn. I say modern-day, it's 20-plus years old now, but it's structured in that way. We've sung this a lot. It's called In Christ Alone, and it's a reminder of where our hope is found. It's, it's found in Jesus. We still sin, but the grace and righteousness of Jesus overcomes our sin. He makes us positionally right with God. And so, Father, this morning we thank you for your word in Leviticus that challenges us today. Are we willing to obey you? Do we see our need for a Savior? Yes, we do. And we're reminded of your new covenant, your new promise, that we get to live on the other side of your Redeemer coming to earth. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ who saves us from our sins who calls us to live a righteous and holy life. So, Father, would you grab a hold of our heart today? Would you lead us into your good purposes for our lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.com dot church.